This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian Bureau for International Education, CBIE. Within the complex environment of international education, the CBIE podcast seeks to elevate the voice of practitioners. CBIE wants to create a space for learning where we can discover new ideas, challenge our preconceptions, and advance our internationalization efforts. The CBIE podcast is for the community, by the community. In each episode, you will hear from experts in our field as they answer your questions. Welcome, everyone. My name is Julio Sevilla. I'm a co-chair for the International Relations Professional Learning Community under the umbrella of CBIE. I'm also an international projects manager with Concordia University in Montreal. Today, we're delighted to host an exciting and relevant panel discussion with the title Internationalization and the SDGs. The Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, are a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and improve the lives of everyone, everywhere. They include the principle of leaving no one behind and motivate us to work together at all levels, international, national, and local. Our universities, hubs for knowledge, discovery, and innovation are well positioned to provide expertise, resources, and know-how to contribute to move the agenda of the SDGs forward. But what is the role of universities, in particular the role of International Relations Office, in contributing to advance this SDGs agenda? To discuss this topic today, we're honored to count with an exceptional group of international experts from different disciplines. Our program includes introductory remarks from our keynote speaker, as well as two panel discussions with the title Strategies in Internationalizing the SDGs in Higher Education Institutions and Case Studies, Universities as the Engine of Transformation to Achieve the SDGs. Without further ado, I would like to ask Mrs. Larissa Biso, President and CEO of CBIE, to say a few words and introduce our keynote speaker. Thank you, Larissa. Thanks, Julio. Hello, everyone. My name is Larissa Biso, and I'm the President and CEO of the Canadian Bureau for International Education. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which I am recording is the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg peoples. On behalf of CBIE's International Relations Professional Learning Community, I'm delighted to welcome you to this three-part series dedicated to internationalization and the Sustainable Development Goals. As we all know well, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development covers a wide range of interrelated goals, including poverty eradication and economic growth, social inclusion, environmental sustainability, and peace for all people by 2030. Policy decisions to meet the Sustainable Development Goals need to be informed by policy-relevant evidence that's co-designed and co-produced by key stakeholders, all the while taking into consideration local and political contexts. One simply needs to consider the various intersections identified among sectors. Take, for example, education, gender, and health to understand the critical role for our post-secondary institutions to lead cross-sectoral implementation of the SDGs and to advance the 2030 Agenda. As we've all experienced in recent years, this work necessitates explicit commitment and fundamental changes at the level of our institutions. Changes in mindsets, changes in culture, 
changes in strategic direction, even structural changes in institutional governance and human resource capacity to allow for this meaningful work to unfold. On a global level, we're also witnessing an increasing number of higher education institutions come on board with the SDGs. Several UN-supported initiatives seek to advance that progress, whether that be the Higher Education Sustainability Initiative or the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, among others. Our institutions can and should play a lead role in strengthening that science policy interface and in helping to generate knowledge alongside communities and many other partners and stakeholders, which have the potential to have an impact on both local and global communities through partnership. Our institutions also have an important role to play in bridging that local and global divide and those dimensions in creating important gathering spaces for conversation, for dialogue, and for learning that's evidence-informed. And our institutions have a really critical role to play in nurturing future leaders, but in really promoting and advancing the notion of global citizenship and global stewardship. As we all know uh, and experience daily, our universities, our colleges, our institutions of higher learning are responsible for training and shaping the future leaders of sustainable development. And through the integration of the SDGs into pedagogy, into learning, into opportunities within our institutions and our partnerships, we're able to advance those goals and to help engage key individuals through research, through learning, through interdisciplinary approaches um, to solving those increasingly complex challenges that face our societies today. Creating space within our international education community to come together to explore the role our post-secondary institutions should play in advancing the sustainable development agenda and in creating space to share and learn from one another as we seek to do this is important for us today and well into the future. And we're really excited to hear from our distinguished panels of contributors today. We're so grateful for the time that you've given to us to share and to learn. And we look forward to continuing that conversation well beyond today's event. And shortly, we look forward to sharing with you an exciting panel that we're shaping for CBIE's upcoming annual conference in November on the role of higher education institutions in advancing progress towards the SDGs. With these opening comments, I'd like to turn my attention to our precious keynote. Today's keynote will be presented by Dr. Alex Awidi. Alex Awidi was appointed Vice Provost at Aga Khan University in 2018. He's also served as the Interim Dean of the Graduate School of Media and Communications in 2019. And before assuming the role of Vice Provost, Alex Awidi was the founding director of the East Africa Institute of the Aga Khan University. We're absolutely delighted uh, to have you with us today, Dr. Awidi. And we're so grateful for the opportunity to learn uh, and to listen and to really benefit from some of your insights and experience. Dr. Awidi. It's a great pleasure to be at this event virtually. And it's a really great honor for me to speak on this subject of sustainable development goals uh, and internationalization. And uh, what I want to speak about is uh, the SDGs and what universities can really do. It's important that we gather to have this discussion 75 years after the United Nations organization was formed by 50 nations that gathered in San Francisco to draw up the United Nations Charter. Uh, the overarching purpose of the United Nations, uh, a term that was coined by Franklin Roosevelt, was to maintain peace and security 
and to promote international cooperation in solving international problems. Sustainable and equitable development is a most urgent problem and challenge, and one that demands every ounce of international cooperation. Every nation, everyone must pull together so we can deliver to posterity a planet that is livable. The report of the World Commission on Environment and Development, our common future, lays out the complex global challenges that define our modern existence. It lays out the problematic across four interconnected axes, uh, people, resources, environment, and development. Our common future framed the intellectual, political, social, and moral basis for what then became 17 goals, 169 targets, and 223 indicators, popularly known as the Sustainable Development Goals. The SDGs are the successor of the eight goals previously framed as the Millennium Development Goals. Now, the SDGs are a call to action, uh, at least for the next 10 years, to launch our planet on a sustainable path. Uh, All of us as citizens of the world have a role to play in achieving the 17 goals. We have a role to play as individuals, members of our community, nationals of our countries, and especially for the community gathered here as intellectual leaders, scholars, and students. Universities have responded admirably through the creation of the University Global Coalition uh, with the tagline, Higher Education for, for a Sustainable Future. The obligation and the opportunity for universities is clear, to educate and inspire students to engage, produce new ideas that lead to new solutions, support and lead local and global efforts. We also have an opportunity to collaborate with communities, private sector and government. But as we all know, our best arsenal, what we are best at, where we can make the greatest contribution is through education, research and service. The Times Higher Education uh, impact rankings and progress universities are making on delivering uh, on the SDGs certainly provides a, an incentive that academics can relate to and might just get us all excited and inspired to act. Our role and value to the delivery of the SDGs is both clear and compelling. But the question I want to pose and speak to shortly is, are we ready to perform the role? The underpinnings of the SDGs uh, is is, is a large set of complex and interconnected challenges and opportunities. Inevitably, the solutions, both actions and policies, require multidisciplinary and, for the most part, transdisciplinary approaches. And as the great ecologist E.O. Wilson put it, we must embrace the mindset of consilience, the unity of knowledge, the dancing together of disciplines, mathematics, physics, uh, from mathematics to physics to biology, to social sciences and the humanities. At their core, disciplinary or subject matter designations in the tradition of departments are are antithetical to the very idea of unity of knowledge, which focuses on problems rather than subject matter. To meaningfully drive and lead the attainment of the SDGs, we must take Karl Popper's 
words more seriously when he says that we are not students of some subject matter, but students of problems. And problems may cut through and across the borders of any subject matter or discipline. We need to reform the academy if we are to play a leading role in the delivery of the SDGs. Uh, there is so much that we must change about curriculum design and teaching and learning. Uh, some of the interventions like problem and case-based learning are great gestures, but they have come short. We must create a new incentive for faculty recognition and promotion if we are to transcend disciplinary barriers. We are often too narrowly educated as academics to even join the dots, for instance, between deforestation and the collapse of lecture towns and lecture cities, for instance. We are too specialized to join the dots between teen pregnancy and national GDP. Our top economic professors who advise presidents and prime ministers and CEOs of foundations or corporations won't make the connection between malnutrition and the cost of public education, for instance. Our national, account and, uh, national accounts can't measure the contribution of soil, fertile soils, for instance, bees and, and, and forests uh, to national GDP. If they do, it is for peer-reviewed publications, not anything that make a compelling case for the conservation of biodiversity and then to work with ministries of health, of, of, uh, of finance to support uh, greater allocation of funding to support environmental courses. The academy was not born to down the discipline hill. Uh, we're designed to solve complex problems, grapple with the most consequential challenges of our time, deliver equitable and sustainable development, but only if we organize differently by reimagining the academy. To quote Michael Crow, who many of you probably know, is currently the president of ASU and was previously the, uh, the director of the, uh, of the Athens Institute at Columbia University that I attended. Uh, he says the transcendence of disciplinary silo mentality is especially relevant to the advancement of use-inspired knowledge to advance sustainable development. So this is, this is really critical. Uh, under Crow's leadership, for instance, ASU eliminated several traditional disciplines, academic departments, including sociology, anthropology, geology, and several in, in various uh, areas of biology. So we can transcend academic silos. We can move to conciliates. We can move to unity of knowledge. We can move our education to a focus that is problem-focused and not subject uh, matter uh, constrained. The reforms in curriculum and instructional models must situate the learner in the context of action, where solutions will be co-created with communities, not for communities, but created together. It requires, therefore, that education happens in places other than the traditional classroom or lecture theaters, and with people other than our professors. Education has to happen with the people in the communities who have deep knowledge, not coded, not written, not documented, but the knowledge that is written in the actions and the enduring sustainability of those communities. But we need more than internships and study abroad programs uh, to inculcate a global or a planetary ethic. We need really massive programs that enable and support students to learn meaningfully and enduring lessons and gain authentic experiences about the real world challenges. So we must reimagine international programs as well. 
we can do it. What we need is champions, academic leaders who won't settle for the easy path of business as usual or incremental gradualism as an approach to curriculum reform and education reform. The change we need in the academy must be equal to the challenge, the existential challenge posed by the Anthropocene. So together, we can rise to beat the challenge, harness the voice of opportunity in the academy, which offers us the capacity to unleash an army of students of problems, not subject matter experts. Thank you so much, Alex. That was a very thought-provoking presentation. I'm really interested in your ideas uh, around changing the paradigm by which we um, by which we study and which we um, educate our students, not through um, teaching of subjects and and studying subjects, but by studying problems and embedding our students in our communities to co-create. My name is Shaheen Nanji. I'm the executive director of SFU International at, at Simon Fraser University. And we have a little bit of time here for some questions. And my colleagues are going to be feeding them, but please feel free to ask questions in the chat. Um, Maybe I'll get us started by asking a question here. Um, Alex, you and I have talked for years about finding a different paradigm for international collaboration, particularly when it comes to North-South collaborations. Um, As we we embark on our, our collective work to achieve the sustainable development goals, Um, In this context of having a global shutdown caused by the pandemic, we have a pause to think about the role of international cooperation in perpetuating, either perpetuating or addressing inequities. What are your thoughts in in light of what's going on in the world today? Uh, Thanks, Shaheen. I think the, the pandemic has visited enormous disruption to our business, just like it has done to others but it has also created a new vortex of opportunity, which I think in many ways uh, changes and recalibrates the way that uh, uh, we, we can cooperate and the way that we can deliver an international education. Um, I think in many ways what it does is it, it, it causes us to, re- to reimagine how we, how we educate, how the students learn. Uh, it causes us to leverage technology and bring to the very comfortable quarters of our students real-world problems via digital and, 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 and other means uh, without necessarily causing them to travel. I think w- w- what I understand this moment to present us is everything that is only limited by our imagination. Uh, I, I think there, there are ways now through all of the vast amounts of technology, uh, through video, for instance, uh, through film, uh, through documentaries, that can now help teachers to, to reimagine how we teach in a way that then situates students around problem-based methods and project-based methods for learning. Uh, you know, think about, say, the, the problem of climate change. Uh, we, we saw the massive flooding in Pakistan, for instance. We've seen the raging fires in, 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 the, in the northwest Pacific of the United States now. Uh, I think these present very interesting opportunities uh, where we can create interesting solution spaces. We can create interesting problem sets that enable students to immerse deeply in the real world and in real time uh, when students don't, don't have the luxury to travel. Uh, but faculty and students have time to pour and to spend time to think about these problems, to look at the global connectedness of these things. What is the, what is the connection? At, you know, it's just a, 
about three, two, three months apart, the flooding in Pakistan and the fires in, 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 in most of the, way, the western part of the United States, Seattle, California. What, what is it that we can learn from these very interesting dynamic around climate change causing two different kinds of, of problems? One is flooding and the other one is fires. What is it that happens with coping mechanisms and, and capacities in those societies? What are government capacities in coping, in resilience, in building communities' capability to cope with these issues, but also in building a capability and a path towards mitigation and changing our ethic and changing our, our relationship with the planet? So I think, and then you can imagine bringing also together a community of international scholars deeply embedded in the context of these problems, Pakistani scholars, geologists, ecologists, economists, and bringing United States uh, scholars from, uh, from the Northwest Pacific, uh, who were ecologists, who were urban planners, who were city builders, who were fire and, and emergency response uh, experts to create a global conversation uh, about our shared and common purpose on the planet. I'm going to go to some more questions that I'm having come in right now. So uh, the first question is um, that you've talked about the need uh, for faculty recognition to implement uh, the SDGs. How can we make this a priority in a university environment facing several challenges, including um, economic and p political? Um, and what be would be some examples of this? I think what I was referring to was the the kind of perverse incentives that we create around faculty promotion and recognition, which is how many general articles, how many books, how many conferences do you attend? And it doesn't matter what these things go out as the real and have as really impact in the real world. You can theorize about everything, but create nothing that is durable, that is usable in those communities. I think if we shifted the, if we change and create a different incentive pathway, that creates an opportunity for faculty to embed in societies and work with communities to solve real problems alongside their students, uh, then I think we'll be on track to actually add real relevance to the sustainable development goals uh, challenge. I think it's a challenge because we have all these great ideas. Uh, you know, we know everything about uh, nutrition. We know a lot of things about healthcare systems. We know everything about education. But we've just not been able to deliver equitable, accessible education for millions of, for, 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 for hundreds of millions of citizens across the world, especially in the developing world. Uh, we still have mothers dying just because they want to have a baby. Uh, we have, in these societies today, especially in my, in my part of the world, people will go hungry tonight. But we have some of the best inventions and some of the best uh, technologies around food production. So the question is, and we have professors who are Nobel laureates in food systems, in health systems, et cetera. How do we join these professors with their brilliant knowledge with the communities of practice, the communities where people need problems solved real time? How do we train them with governments? How do we connect them with civil society? How do we connect with foundations who have the dollars to spend on these problems and create a different incentive that does not just privilege academic publications? Those are great because they break the frontiers of theoretical foundations. But then the question is, how do we join these theoretical formulations with real practice? I think that's where the real, the real, the real rub is. And how do you re-incentivize academic production operations and, 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 and the knowledge generation process to then tag the knowledge generation to, to practice and to product creation? 
uh, especially in creating adaptation and possible solution pathways to solve intractable problems in societies and communities. Thank you. The next question is, um, how can we work with organizations that support researchers who've been displaced by countries in war and conflict? Uh, I think we need to create, you know, there is academics without borders, for instance. Uh, and, and, and Greg Moran is here. I think the, the, the real challenge is how do we make sure that the, the enterprise of academic productivity, the enterprise that generates the evidence base that drives practice, that drives policy, that drives adaptation and innovation in societies continues. Uh, it's not to create some kind of a special protection fund for academics who've been displaced, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a question of how do you create the necessary connectivity and how do you create the necessary uh, kind of continuity uh, in connection to deliver on, 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 on the academic mission. Uh, I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that, we, that I always think about is uh, the relationship between Kenya, Kenya's education achievement and, and say the, the war that raged in Uganda for several years and how Ugandan academics came and poured everything they had into Kenyan children uh, in, school, in high schools and in universities and in secondary schools and then returned back to their country years later. And now we see the, the cross-border exchange of academic and intellectual enterprise. So I, I think there are opportunities that can be created through open borders, uh, through all of the international channels that basically welcome refugees across, across different borders. We've seen this happen in Syria, for instance. And I think these outpourings of generosity and, 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 and welcome. Uh, are critical. Just as much as we extend them to ordinary citizens, we should open those doors to academics as well. And through these kinds of networks that we've built, uh, we can reach out to fellow academics in distress and make sure that we give them a lifeline to continue to produce the enterprise uh, that basically builds uh, the future of our societies. That's great. Um, at Simon Fraser, we're um, members of Scholars at Risk, and we manage to to host scholars um, through that program where, um, you know, they, they come to us through the program that are now vetted by scholars at risk and, and they become part of a global network of scholars who are, who are threatened. So um, I completely agree. It's an important role for us to play. Um, the next question um, is, are there existing examples of international learning that works to solve problems? Would you say the approach of business schools working in teams to solve issues in various locations is an example? I think the business school in many ways uh, provides interesting lessons for the rest of the academy to learn from because they all, they're often constrained by solving problems. Uh, and the kinds of students they receive are students who are solutions-oriented. They need to go back to industry to solve problems, uh, especially if you're in an MBA class most of the time you have people of industry experience. So there's a cross-fertilization that then basically changes the dynamic around the exchange of knowledge. And, and, and what happens then, an environment of vibrant co-creation. Uh, this is very different from uh, most of us who kind of subsist in, that, in, in undergraduate programs, where you kind of assume that you're the sage on the stage and, 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 and that you, 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 your direction of the learning process then is the preeminent uh, uh, process of, of of exchange. Um, I think 
again, I talked about case-based and problem-based methods for, for, for education. Those have their limits. Uh, but I think what, what we really need is how do we think, how do we conceptualize the world around mm-hmm. problems rather than subject matters? How do we create a collegial process, an academy in its true sense, where this complete and total exchange uh, from, from, from different kinds of individuals who, who pop in and drop in uh, to, to teach one part of a, of a program because they bring the essential experience, they bring the essential expertise to bear on the subject. And, and, and what the professor, who is a sessional professor, does is, and just, is a choreographer of the learning process and then creates an exchange between students and their mentors at, at, at different stages uh, in, 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 in the academic uh, semester. Uh, so I think the model of the business school is, is great, but I think what we also need to do is inject more flexibility in curriculum design. If, 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 the, if the curriculum is designed in such a way that uh, you know, all of it is predicated on, 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 on learning in the classroom setting and problem sets that are driven by the professor, then it's a very limited model. But how about if a significant part of the program is delivered in a modular function, modular fashion, and juxtaposed by real industry experience, where they go out and work with communities and come back with a problem. Uh, one of my colleagues many years ago said, "You know, if you have a community kind of internship program, then you'll examine the students not on how well they did in solving community problems, but how articulate they were at asking questions that help illuminate their ignorance." Uh, so. To what extent are they good at asking questions rather than providing solutions? So I think that question model, uh, which, which basically then drives into the elements of, of problem and solution space, which also then enables the people who co-create that knowledge process, the community, who are the real experts. Uh, they don't have the codified knowledge and solution spaces, but they have the experiential part. And then you have the students then walk around creating a generalizable way of understanding those principles that, that farmers use, for instance, in solving problems. i give a quick example. Many years ago, when I was doing my PhD, I, I was using reflexive spectroscopy, taking samples of soil across uh, swaths of Western Kenya, and, and then shining a light on these and measuring soil quality parameters. I, 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 I walk into this homestead, and I ask this lady, because this, this, this homestead was an outlier after we'd taken the samples, uh, the, the, the soil characteristics were very similar to the pristine undisturbed forest soils, which is, which is the basis, uh, the baseline from which all of the converted uh, agricultural systems were derived. And when I asked her, she said, I, I just crawl my animals and rotate the crawl around. So the animals deposit their dung across uh, the farmscape. And that's the, that way she's able to preserve the, the soil quality. And, and this is what we've been grappling with for many, many years. How do you sustain over the long term, productive soils in the tropics when weathering and all these uh, soil degradation processes are extremely acute. But this old lady had the solution. And we're grappling all these years trying to think about fertilizer formulation. And all along, she was using resources that she needed. So I think that kind of grounding in in real world problems, where you have professors, farmers, and and students working together with extension agriculture people and government to then incentivize sustainable lives of production, and mixed farming and practices that can, can sustain soil fertility over the long term. Uh, some examples that we could, we could think about. 
So I have a I have a follow up question to that. Um, as we as we um, take our students, I mean, the global pandemic has forced us to get our students out of the classroom. They're studying from wherever they are for the most part. Um, so how can we make this new form of a classroom? You know, when when people are able to travel again and be more embedded in communities, um, how can how can we make that classroom, the applied classroom, um, less about voyeurism and volunteerism and more about co-creating? Like you you keep talking about that, and I, I I sort of I feel like there's there are skills that need to be taught, and we haven't quite figured that out yet. I think for in in, in many instances, the the instinct of of students, you know, from preschool to kindergarten to high school is collegial, is collaborative, is co-creation. But we beat that out of them when we create, when we turn them into these competitive machines uh, for a grade and GPA and the dean's list and et cetera. So we boil out their capacity to share knowledge freely and voluntarily. And we, and we create these competitive monsters out of them. I think what the pandemic does is it creates a distributed classroom where you learn anywhere, everywhere, and we have all the gadgets. We have your phone, you have your, uh, your camera, and you can create the shared experiences every moment of the day. Now, the question is, how do you retrain academics to be able to deliver the academic goals and objectives in a way that can be credentialed in an environment that is completely disrupted and is unlike anything that we know? I think that's, that's the biggest question. I think everything else that we need to make education real and oriented to solving problems is right before us. The question is, do we have the flexibility in the academy and within regulatory authorities to then recognize a different way of learning and a different way of creating knowledge that now is distributed, a must in the context in which the education and the knowledge might even be applied. So you can imagine teaching agriculture in the tropics here in Kenya, for instance, and you bring the students from this vast country into Nairobi. And you teach them for 16 weeks and you send them off on holiday. And then at some point you send them to an attachment, to a farm. And then they come back and they get a degree. Imagine what they could do now, learning, studying agriculture and walking at home with their grandparents and with their parents, raising chickens, raising livestock, going to the farm and tilling, identifying the weeds and the pests. And thinking about all of these sustainable agricultural methods that we talk about all the time, and then coming to a professional class and speaking about the daily issues that they face collectively. You know, it is one of the most amazing kind of distributed learning programs that you can ever imagine. So I think, like I say, everything that this pandemic throws us, the limits and the challenges that we'll get will be basically those determined by inability to reimagine fast. And and, 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 and and adapt education to a new to a new era. This is, you know, in my in, in, in all of my writings, this, this is a dream come true that education is finally disrupted and the student is installed as the leader and as the person who drives their learning, not the professor, who then assumes their rightful role as the guide on the side and basically supports the student to discover that's which that, that which is within them but also enables them to reveal the context in which they will be applying the knowledge basis that they acquire when they leave the university. 
I would like to thank Professor Awiti for his inspired remarks. I'm sure both our audience and our speakers will be able to reflect and be inspired by this talk. Before we conclude this section, I would like to thank all my colleagues who contributed to this event, including CBIE, in particular Larissa Biso, Karen Dalkey, and Kimberly Janfara, and our organizing committee, including Meghna Ramazwalmi from Saskatchewan University, Shaheen Nanhin, and Yukino Mori from Simon Fraser University, Bertie Tayong from Concordia University. I also would like to invite you to stay with us and listen to our following panel discussions. Thank you, everyone, and see you in our next section. That's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the CBIE podcast so you don't miss our next episode. If you're a member of the Canadian Bureau for International Education, please log into the Community Hub for some bonus content. Exclusive to CBA members, the Hub is a user-friendly social network with forums managed by the lead of the Professional Learning Communities, PLCs, of CBIE. If you're not yet a member of CBIE, visit cbie.ca to learn more. See you next time.